it out. Get it out. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from the LAFC community match by match, fan by fan, Olympic gold medalist by Olympic gold medalist. Folks, we have a very esteemed privilege this evening. As this is episode 99 for us, we would like to pay homage to a year crystallized within the American sporting landscape, the year in which the U.S. women's national team took home the World Cup And we are very, very privileged this evening to be bringing on a two-time World Cup performer, as well as a two-time gold medalist with the U.S. Women's National Team. Joining us at the end of the show today is going to be none other than Angela Hughes, legend of the 08 Olympics. She is, of course, the part owner and vice president of player development and operations at Angel City Football Club. We thought we would take episode 99 as a moment to tip our cap to the women's game. Of course, episode 99, drawing the direct parallel and what we are looking forward to next season with ACFC. Perhaps a bit of a departure from the LAFC world uh, in the interview portion of the show, partly because, amigo, man, the LAFC world has been a little bleak. Uh, Speaking of bleak, our co-host Christian is out sick this evening. So joining me this week is none other than the man behind the show himself, Mr. Christopher Sines. Man, 99 episodes, man. It's... uh... It's come, we've come a long way, dude. I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to this uh, interview that we have with Angela. And it's, uh, it's not every day you get to talk to an Olympian or a, a representative uh, at the world stage at the World Cup. Man, this is, uh, this is pretty awesome. A, a prolific career, to be sure. And a great story when she had to step in for Wombat there in 08 and really put the United States team on her back and led us to gold that year. This is going to be a really thrilling conversation later in the show. But unfortunately, sir, we got some slog we got to get through first. And I suppose it's time to rip the Band-Aid off. And let's talk about that 3-3 draw to Carson. And then we'll head in through the Diego Rossi news that followed that. Two subjects that have been discussed so much by us and so many other outlets throughout the course of this week. But obliged as we are to go through it once again. Chris, what were your takeaways from that 3-3 game versus Carson? You know, you use the analogy of ripping the Band-Aid off. I don't, you know, I don't feel like it was that bad. You know, I think that when you look at how LAFC's run of form has been as of late and our struggles to score more than two goals in a match and for especially on a derby when everybody gets hyped up and I think that there was a lot of people that were concerned with LAFC getting obliterated by the Galaxy and people were talking about how if we lose at the bank to the Galaxy in the Derby, this has got to be the end for Bob. I think that when you look at the full body of work and where LAFC currently is right now that you have to kind of be, I'm, I'm not disappointed with the result. I felt like we came out Brian Rodriguez had that amazing golazo for the second goal. And then he followed it up with a brace less than 10 minutes later with a follow through after a rebound. I think that when you just talk about the electricity that we saw from LAFC, the energy that they put out on the pitch, just the back and forth, I felt like that was a great derby. Well, I think, look, having Raito come out and finally get a brace in a derby game and to do so in the manner in which he did Golasso, Golasso. I mean, that is unquestionably in the top five LAFC goals all time. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think anyone 
anyone is going to say that that isn't a top five goal in the history of this franchise. So anytime you have something like that happen, and of course it happens against Karsten, you have to be elated with his personal performance. But the defensive capitulations, the mistakes that were made, the repeated mistakes from the same player that were made, I mean, let's be honest, we could have held them to a clean sheet if Mario has a great game. I mean, all three goals, he makes two mistakes on each goal. And unfortunately, the guy just, he, he didn't have it. It wasn't his night. He's had some stellar games for us. And this is part of being a, a building and developing team. When you bring in young talent and you develop them, you have to deal with those developmental pains. You have to deal with those games where they have to turn around and learn from. And unfortunately, this is something that is likely to be around LAFC for as long as this team is around. As long as we adapt the mentality of bringing in young players and developing them, which is the MLS model, which is based on the finances of this league, how we have to go about it. We're going to have these games where young, promising, soon-to-be star players lay an egg. Uh, and, and frankly, that's what we got from Mario. And it was unfortunate timing. And given this run of form that we have had, have not won a game in a month. This one was such an emotional game. We got a TIFO for Mo and Jaime before the game. There was so much riding on this in the community and on the pitch. To see it given away so late in the game, once again, by some defensive lapses, really put a dark stain on the whole experience. Finally scoring three goals on the season and getting that brace from Raito are certainly bright spots and things that we want to look at as positives coming out of it. But I have to disagree with you. It did not feel like a positive experience for me. It felt like a loss leaving the stadium. The manner in which we gave it away and, and when it happened just did not sit well with me. But I can respect your opinion that, you know, you didn't feel so bad about it given it was a tie. I, I can respect your opinion. It's wrong. But <laughs> now, OK, let me ask you this. Right. OK, so. We look at we look at LAFC and we look at the month of August and we look at how we had had four straight losses in a row, right? We lost to SKC four to one. We lost to San Jose two to one. We lost to Atlanta one zero. We lost to Vancouver two to one. If I had told you two weeks ago, in the derby, look, bro, LAFC is going to have four losses in a row, but in the derby we tie. Would you be happy with that result? I think that most people in the LAFC community, given the circumstances and the situation that everybody felt that LAFC was in after we had had those losses and in the fashions in which we lost them, if you were to say we would have a tied game, a 3-3 tie in the derby, I think there you would find a lot of people that would be like, I'd take it, given the fact of the run of form that we've had. You know, and I think people need to take that into consideration when they're looking like, of course, Monday morning quarterback, you want to sit here and say, yes, you know, Murillo didn't have the, the game that we would have liked and it would have it could have pre potentially prevented goals. I mean, there was also scoring opportunities that didn't happen in the match too on LAFC side. So, I mean, you could push it one way or the other, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, no game is going to be a perfect match and there's always going to be things that can be worked on. And I think that people need to, almost just realize where we've been this whole month and look at this match and say, Hey, look, I like, I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy with it. One, because we didn't lose, right. A loss in our house to our rivals that like, you wouldn't hear the end of it. We wouldn't have an opportunity to give them retribution unless it was solely just to go and beat them at their house. 
right? But for the narrative, the narrative that the galaxy continued to try and put on us is that they are dominant over us, right? If you look at the, that was our 12th Darby, right? And you, so the galaxy have five wins. I think we have three wins and then there's four ties, okay? So we need to start shifting it. And if we would have taken an L this past weekend, it would have just made it even more of a narrative that they say that they have the dominant force over us. So I will take this tie, especially with the way that we were playing. We didn't have Carlos Vela. And I, I, I think when all things considered, you have to, you have to cut him some slack. Do you think it was a penalty in the first minute of the game? Oh, of course. Of course I do. You know, but that's, that's, but that's also, you know, I don't know if there's that Homer influence on it, but I also realized too, like, but I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, well, that was the difference maker in the game. You know, there, there are so many teams that get so many butchered calls from VAR all throughout the league that I'm not going to sit here and use that as a, as a crux for an excuse to be like, oh, well, we lost because we didn't get a call our way. So many other teams don't get their calls that way either. I think the whole thing about VAR is that it's supposed to level the playing field. And I know no ref wants to blow a whistle and point to the spot within the first minute of the game. You know, within those first few minutes of the game, it's just, it's very difficult to see red cards, penalties, that sort of thing. The whole point of VAR is that it's supposed to be this objective force that takes all of those emotional factors out and just has a very dry, logical look at what happened. And every replay I watched, he clearly gets his foot kicked into the other side. And he, you know, I I just, I, I don't see how that evidence wasn't clear and obvious. And after this many times in which VAR has decided against LAFC in situations where we either haven't felt it was clear and obvious and they've gone ahead and made the call against us or in situations where we felt it is clear and obvious and yet the decision hasn't gone our way. I just don't understand what's going on with VAR. Either get it right or don't do it. I don't know. I mean, there's obviously things about VAR. You know, it's not just the referee on the pitch making the decisions. He's listening to people that are in a booth reviewing it. He then goes and he reviews it himself. He's still being spoken to by people in a booth that are talking to him. I mean, there's so many conversations that we have no idea what's being said, what they're seeing, how it's being justified. Like at this point, I'm just like, I accept the fact that we're just going to be victims to VAR because we have no influence, no control. And there's not a single thing that any fan can do to change it. Right. Like I just accept the fact that it's like VAR is going to be a thing of the game and it's going to have an influence. And sometimes it's going to benefit us and sometimes it's going to kick us where it hurts. During the MLS's back tournament, we actually got to listen in on the VAR decisions and what they were talking about. And I thought that transparency was really cool. I would like to see that going forward. I think it would help me stomach a lot of these VAR decisions a lot better. But yeah, but I I think that that also opens the MLS to criticism, you know, and and I, I think that that nobody wants to allow themselves to be exposed for more criticism. Uh, speaking though of penalties, I thought it was, especially given the fact of what happened to Diego this week, I thought it was interesting that when we did finally get the penalty in the box for our first goal in the Derby, that there was a conversation between Diego Rossi and Chicho Arango about who was going to take the penalty. And ultimately you saw, at least from my vantage point, I felt like what I saw was Chicho Arango pretty much told Diego, I'm going to take this penalty. And it seemed like Diego gave in. I don't, I find it interesting 
you know, Diego at that point, you know, he is the best scorer that we have on the pitch. He had taken plenty of penalty shots, especially in Carlos's absence. It's not like he has been having trouble finishing any of his penalty shots. The only thing that I could think was that Diego gave in to Chicho because he was trying to score his first goal and he was trying to just break the ice and, and, uh, and, you know, give him that opportunity to get the, the, the demon off of his back of just being able to have the first one done. But, you know, I have a feeling that everything that was being transpired with Diego and the transfer to Fenerbahce, that was probably already something to be considered at that time in the game. Like, I think that people knew in within the club that that was happening. And if that's the case, I, I would have preferred that Diego took that goal because that would have been Diego having his final goal on a derby in front of the home fans. Like, I felt like that would have been plenty of reason for Diego to tell Chicho Rongo, no, bro. Like, I might be leaving. This might be my last match. I'm, I'm kicking this penalty. I'm going to try and score this goal. I, I see where you're coming from completely. I also think there's a moment in that where, yeah, look, Arango's trying to get off the schneid. You know, he wants to turn that goose egg around and, and get his first goal for the team. So it's part of trying to build up the player around you. But it also was kind of a passing of the torch, right? And there's a way to look at it where it's Rossi saying, you know, look, this is your team now. This isn't my shot to take anymore. You know, I've scored a enough goals for this club. I've got a golden boot. If I'm going to get my swan song goal, it's going to be in the run of play. It's not going to be from the spot. And, you know, maybe that was some kindness in him there trying to not only help the guy out, but also say, you know, look, this is, this is the guy now. And so as we go into this Diego Rossi less LAFC, we're not thinking to ourselves, well, we've never seen Arango take a penalty. Well, Arango's never scored a goal for us. You know, both of those things are off the table now. And so perhaps it eases the faith of the fans going into that next game. So maybe Rossi did this as a kind gesture to all of us in the LAFC community as well, too, and not just to Arango himself. But I, I do think that was a very interesting point in the game. There were a lot of other undesirable things that took place around the game, which I, I kind of just want to jump past at the moment and get right into the big news, the gut punch. Well, I guess one last thing about the game, I suppose that I, I did predict a six-goal thriller in our last show. I was just hoping that it was going to be 4-2. But I do believe Christian, uh, who sadly is ill and not with us tonight, he did predict uh, a Rayito goal and an Arango goal. So I think we have to give Christian credit for picking both of those things. And I'm sad that I was woefully wrong about my six goal thriller but also something that i had mentioned over the past couple shows is circle this week on your calendar right after the derby game and right after the all-star game because that's when i predicted a big departure would happen and i'm sorry i hate being right but in this case it was diego rossi who was on a plane to Fenerbahce. it happened within the span of a few hours from the time we heard a rumor then all of a sudden, boom, he's on a plane. There goes the man who was part of our first ever starting 11, who scored the first goal in the history of this franchise, the one who put this team on his back in so many prolific moments from that shots of a goal versus Leon, the four-goal masterclass he put in in the Rona Rumble versus Carson, the golden boots, 
all of those goals and all of that history on a plane to Turkey. So, Chris, what was your initial gut reaction to the departure of Diego Rossi? You know, and we've talked about this several times on the show, you know, and especially when we had John Thornton on, we are a seller's club and we had all known that Diego was going to go. So I wasn't shocked. And you could hear from people that were speculating on uh, Diego's run of form throughout the season. The part of the reason why he may not have been playing as well is because he was not, he was unsettled, right? He was looking to get transferred previously, but the coronavirus pandemic had thrown a wrench in a bunch of people's plans and it just wasn't the right time for LAFC. Of course, there were talks of uh, potential landing spots for him in um, English premier sides, but those were just those were just talks that there was nothing concrete, nothing that was a definitive, you know, agreement or anything. It was more of just like a, a speculation of, hey, is this player available? We might be interested in him. You know, I'm 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 excited for him. I think that Diego is going to have a very, very strong and good career in front of him. I would like to see him one day move on from Fenerbahce and play in one of the top five leagues in Europe. And to know that he had started that journey here in Los Angeles, that's something to be very proud of. I think that, you know, I I don't know too many other clubs that, you know, like we know the FC Dallas is where they send off their youth, their underdeveloped youth that haven't had an opportunity to shine. Like I can think of uh, Miguel Almiron, right. As one player that was, that played very well and was looked at as a top talent in the MLS and then had made that transition over. And I, I think that there's less of those players, less of those that have actually really, really developed in the MLS and shined. And then they attracted those moves to bigger clubs in Europe. So to be part of that smaller group of players that have made that transition from the MLS to those teams in Europe based off of because of their performance here in the MLS, as opposed to a talented youngster that just gets picked up because a European club sees potential. It's like a proud thing. I'm proud to be a fan of Diego Rossi and I'm proud that he played for my club and I'm proud that he is now getting moved on. And when we were on those Twitter spaces talking with the fans of Fenerbahce, you know, it, it it's an exciting thing to see because we I so desperately want to see him do well and I want to see him succeed and I want people on the world stage to know hey LAFC can produce great talent I, I couldn't agree more I think we all knew Diego Rossi from the second he was signed was signed to launch pad over to Europe that was the whole plan coronavirus threw a massive wrench in that plan and ultimately probably brought the market significantly down from what he was rated, you know, in the 15 to 20, 25 million range. It's going to end up being significantly less than that up front. So we purchased him for two and a half million dollars and 10% of his rights remain with Peñarol. So when we sell him on 10% of that sell on fee is going to go back to Peñarol. So anything above two and a half plus another, you know, 250,000 is what it would take for it to be a profitable set. So we'll just round up after the amount that ends up going to the league and amount to players and all that other stuff. If he gets sold for North of 4 million, it's profitable for the club. The club is making anything beyond 4 million. So we've heard rumors of 
6 million, 8 million, 8 million euros, which would be about 10 million US, which is all about half of what he was rated at on most people's opinions of him being an 18-ish million dollar player. Now, we have no idea what percentage of his sell-on rights we have still retained. We don't know if there are performance incentives for the club or for the player that are tied into this contract as well, too. And we don't even really know a dollar amount. So it's a bit early to speculate on whether this was financially sound business for LAFC. But we do know that it is based on Fenerbahce's current financial fair play system, that it is a loan right now with an expectation that Fenerbahce will purchase him at the end of that loan, which sounds a bit risky for LAFC. So we don't know exactly the particulars involved there. But by all accounts from both the player and the club, he's not coming back at the end of this loan spell. It is going to be a sale. And we're just going to have to wait until April 1st to figure out what that dollar amount is. So my question, in rather long-winded sense per usual, is what dollar amount would make you happy with this sale? Or what combination of dollar amount and percentage of his rights? I would say if we bought Diego for two and a half, I would say four to five million dollar range is a, is a dollar amount that I would be happy with. Because in my mind, I had a player, he killed it for us. He played his heart out for the three and a half seasons that he was here. And now I've sold him and I can get two players for the price of him. You know, I, I can now go out and invest in two players that are at two and a half million dollars, or I can go out and, you know, cause I think that that's, I think that that's more of LAFC style where they're going to, they, they take the full allotment of money that they get and they're going to distribute it and they're going to put their eggs in several baskets as opposed to just buying one player. Right now, that may also be different if with Carlos Vela and the comments that he had made after during the All-Star game about how he was interviewed in Spanish and he had said that uh, somebody had asked him, does he miss playing in Europe? And he had said, yes, of course, I enjoyed playing in Europe very much. And they said, is there a possibility for you to go and play in Europe again? He goes, sure. It's pretty much he was like, yeah, sure, it's possible. Anything's possible. He has no idea what's going to happen because he hasn't he hasn't signed a new contract and he hasn't fulfilled his current contract. So you know, he, he played it off as like, yeah, sure. Maybe. I mean, who knows? It's a, you know, who knows what's going on, but if you lose Carlos, then maybe there's a justification to take the four to $5 million that you gained from the sale of Diego Rossi and you're buying one sole player. But I would like to think that all things being equal, if you didn't feel the need to fill a void, like Carlos Vela, that you would take that and split that amongst two players and be able to then buy two players that potentially could turn out to be two Diego Rossi's. In John Thorrington's interview about the sale, when asked about the finances of the sale or the specifics of the contract, he obviously couldn't answer that. But his political response to it was, the resources that will be created by the sale of Diego Rossi will allow us to go out and fill that DP slot. So whatever the finances of the transaction end up being once this loan spell is done, it's the belief of this club that those finances are enough to go out and acquire the next designated player. But when you look at, you know, salaries right now and you look at, you know, Carlos makes $6 million a year, Diego and Brian both make like 1.5 or maybe two. Right. So when he's talking about having the assets to replace Diego, that doesn't mean that we're going to have money to, acquire a player like Carlos 
it means that we're going to have enough money to acquire a player like Brian or Diego. Who knows? Uh, again, we don't know the finances. I think if your prediction of four to five million dollars, or at least the level in which you said you'd be happy at four to five million, it, it would take 30% of the sell on rights at five million dollars in order for me to stomach that deal. I think eight to 10 million and 15 to 20% of his sell on rights would make me a little happier. But who knows? You know, all of that really depends on how well he performs at Fenerbahce. And fortunately, some of those games are going to be able to be aired here on TV. I know some of their big games versus uh, some of the big Turkish sides like uh, Beşiktaş, uh, Galatasaray. Those games are likely to be aired at some point in time on some platform. But of course, Fenerbahce is also in the Europa Cup. So we're going to get to see them play the likes of all the various teams in Europa. And if they perform well enough in that competition and win it, that's a berth into Champions League. And, and they're in big boy time then. So, I mean, look, let's be honest, as an Arsenal fan, I kind of wish we were good enough to play in Europa League right now. So it's going to be fun. A lot of those Europa League games are broadcast here in the States. And so we're going to get a chance to follow Diego Rossi. I've been seeing a lot of people jokingly saying online, you know, Fenerbahce desde la cuna, right? Dinner Fenerbahce from the cradle. So um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who have converted to Fenerbahce fans here in L.A. We're going to see some of those kids floating around. You know, first and foremost, Diego, thank you for everything you did for this club, this community, this team. We wish him all the best. We wish him nothing but success. But uh, it is a fine time to leave us, Diego, with so many players heading out in this upcoming SKC game. So we are now down to hardly anyone left on the squad. So I'm very curious to see how we're going to line up in this next game. But uh, at the moment, so we have Diego Rossi, uh, who has obviously gone to Fenerbahce. Also out on international duty, Jose Cifuentes, Diego Palacios, Brian Rodriguez, Kim Moon Wan, Tony Leone, and Christian Torres are all out on various international duties. And then add that to our injured players, the likes of Opoku, Alvaro Quezada, Eric Duenas, Carlos Vela, Eddie Segura. However, a new name has showed up on that list of Tristan Blackman as well, too. So a lot of players injured, a lot of players on international duty. We've seen quite a few people online saying it's going to be the Las Vegas Lights versus SKC coming up tomorrow. But so why don't you go ahead and throw some predictions at me, Chris? What is your starting 11 look like? What is your starting formation look like? And what do you think the results are going to be tomorrow? Well, so I think that given how Bob has now has two different formations that he goes to, right? And we talked about this before going on air. I think that the 5-3-2 is going to be the better formation that he's going to at least start off with. And maybe he'll do the halftime change where at halftime he goes back to his four, three, three. But in terms of if he does do the five, three, two, the, obviously the three center backs that we have uh, that are still healthy, it'd be, it would be, let me look at this. So it'd be, um, you're saying Ibiaga fall, right. Ibiaga fall and Mario for my left back. I would have Farfan. And as we know, Marco Farfan can play left or right back. For right back, I would put uh, Raheem Edwards. For my midfield, I would uh, I would have Blessing, Atuesta, and Janela. And then up top, I would have Chicho Arango and either a Masovsky or a Cal Jennings. So interesting. You're going with a 5-3-2. And I think most of Bob's five at the back formations this year have been 5-2-3s. 
which kind of melds into that 3-4-3 with still keeping three up top. So you're retreating to have two up top, putting an extra body in the midfield, and then you have Edwards at right back in a five-back system. My only – I don't think that's impossible. My only concern with going five at the back in this next game is if someone gets a yellow card, someone takes a knock, and some combination of fall, Sebastian Ibiaga, Jesus David Mario has to come out, who's your next center back at that point? With Tristan Blackman hurt, with Duaneus out, I mean, Tristan Blackman coming in? in no, I mean, not Tristan, so Tristan then, Blackman's hurt. I mean, uh, Jordan Harvey's coming in at no, that point? No, no, no. So then if you have that same, let's say that it's one of our three center backs gets hurt, right? You pull him out, and at that point, you go to the 4-3-3. And so then you'll have the two center backs, whichever two didn't get hurt. You have still Farfan and uh, Raheem Edwards as your wing backs. Your three midfielders would then be Janela, Bryce Duke, and Atuesta. And then I would have Blessing up as one of my wings. And then I would have Musovsky, Chicho Arango, and... um, blessing and i i don't know which one of those three would be another wing i guess they would just maybe do their rotational thing where all three players just constantly change their starting positions so i think i'm, I'm not too far off from what you're thinking there at right back for this game i would play latif unless there's someone else that they want to experiment with at that position that's coming up from our usl side but Latif has proven that he can play right back in the past. Farfan could play over at left back. And I agree with you. If we play five at the back, it's it's got to be those three names. And if we play two at the back, it's likely Ibiaga that's out. And that leaves just Fall and Murillo behind. My midfield, I would have to agree, Janela, Atuesta, Duke. And then my front three, it's going to have to be Arango, Mazowski, Jennings, if I have Latif playing back and um that either pushes Arango or Mazowski out to the wings and would probably leave Cal Jennings as the central striker I don't know how effective he's been at at playing a rotating front three whether or not Chirundolo's been doing that with the Las Vegas light side or not so either way it's going to be a squad we've probably a starting 11 we've probably never seen before and Let's, I think we just lost, what, what was it, 4-1 to SKC when we were playing a healthier squad? Now, yeah. as far as international duties, I think they only have one player out on international duty and the rest of their team is fairly healthy. I don't know. I think that this is going to be another scenario where it's, LAFC might play a little conservative. Hence also why only having two strikers, you're just going to play conservative, not necessarily like parking the bus, but you're just not, you're going to accept the fact that you're missing some of our strikers that uh, we have relied on for, for helping us to score and win games and that we are using certain players that are not our starting 11 players. And so you just have to try and not give up easy goals and and not make mistakes that lead to goals. So it's, it is, it's more of that conservative play. And if a player like uh, Arango or any of the, any of the the wingbacks that may creep up to do a cross into the box, you know, you, you take your opportunities when they come, but you don't press for opportunities. All right. So I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you think it's going to be five at the back or four at the back? I say five at the back. 
I think it's going to, that's the same thing we saw when we played against SKC last time was a first half of five at the back and a second half of four at the back. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's the game plan again. Mm-hmm. I, I do think this is going to be a very challenging game for us. Depth is going to be tested. And I do think this is a game in which our likelihood of coming out on top is pretty low especially given what the roster is looking like at this point. So not the most optimistic about tomorrow, but it's going to be a fun game. Friday night games are always a blast. I feel like people let go a little bit on Friday nights. It's a little louder. People haven't had as long throughout the course of the day to tailgate. So unlike Saturday, Sunday games where people can burn themselves out a little bit on Christmas tree lane, you got to pace yourselves, y'all. All right. You can't just go crazy on the lane and expect to get into the bank and be able to give it, you know? But on Fridays, when people still don't have to work the next day, but haven't had as much time to exhaust themselves at the lane, you typically get a good atmosphere. With Rossi having left, I think there's probably going to be a few people cheering his name in the stadium. And it's going to be, you know, a cathartic moment for all of us to kind of come together and say goodbye to him in our own way, even though he's already gone. And, you know, and embrace the new squad going forward. This is going to be a great opportunity to see a lot of those Las Vegas lights guys and and how they can step up on the biggest stage and what the rest of the squad is going to be able to handle. And, you know, even if they went out there and parked the bus and tried to counter and stacked fours at the back and just tried to absorb and release, uh, I would almost be okay with that just to see if we could do it, just to know if LAFC has that in their locker. You know, if you really look at this roster, though, a lot of these guys are not. They didn't come like the starting 11, they didn't come from Las Vegas, right? If you look at Ibiaga, NYCFC didn't come from a USL side. Mario didn't fall. We had gotten him from the Academy straight out and he had started off the season, but I mean, he's only, you know, but he is, I don't consider him to be a USL quality center back. Farfan came from Portland. He's not a USL side. Raheem Edwards came from Toronto and he's not a USL side. Okay, so our whole back line are not USL sides. Atuesta, Janela, and Latif, they're not. Arango is not. And so then, and Danny Masofsky, you know, he, yeah, he came from Reno when we first acquired him, but he played really well last season. I no longer look at Danny Masofsky as a USL side striker. So, I mean, if you were to go with those players as our starting 11, it, this none of those guys are Las Vegas players, right? Like those are those are LAFC players in my mind. Valid point. Very valid point. We're just going to have to wait and see. Well, yeah. did you have anything else that you wanted to touch on in regards to either the Derby, the Rossi departure, or anything about this upcoming match versus sporting before we dive into our interview with Angela Hucles? Yes, actually. So tonight when we recorded, which is a Thursday, Uruguay played a match against Peru and Brian Rodriguez not only did he get a start he played the full 90 minutes goals assists there was one that ended in a 1-1 tie he did not have the goal i think both our colombians were on the bench kim Wan was also on the bench as well too blessing in disguise I, I know we would like these players to all go to these stages and excel but if they're not going to start and they get rested that's also not the worst thing coming back as well too so I guess selfishly, it's, it might be nice that they didn't get the minutes, but did get the experience. But as far as selling these players on and developing them and, and getting that big money offer to come in for them down the road, we would have liked them all to have succeeded at these national games. Yes, but no. Uh, so he did not get the assist. But but I mean, still to play 
because they're also doing their World Cup qualifiers too, right? So for Brian Rodriguez to play the full 90 minutes for Uruguay, I mean, regardless of whether or not he's the one that's putting putting assists or goals on on for his team, he, Uruguay is definitely a side that is considered to be one of the top in the world. And we have we do we have a player that represents his country, and it is one of the ones that's in the top ten. Well, speaking of representing your country, I think this is a perfect point in time to go ahead and transition the show to our interview. Once again, joining us for episode ninety nine is Angela Hughes. You know her as a two time Olympic gold medalist, two time World Cup bronze medalist for the United States Soccer. She's a former professional soccer player at the Boston Breakers. She is also the U.S. Soccer Foundation's 2009 Humanitarian of the Year. In her more recent walk, she is currently part owner, vice president of player development and operations at our very own Angel City Football Club. So this is our first World Cup champion we have ever had on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, folks. It's Angela Hughes. <laughs> you guys said it was going to be a flowery intro. You you didn't lie about that. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> you know, we have to give credit. Jonathan is a master of words and introductions, and he definitely does his homework when he does these. But Love thank it. you again. This was, this is such a huge honor, huge, huge honor. What you've done representing our country in the facets that you have and now representing the city of Los Angeles with your a new role with Angel City FC. Just can't thank you enough for helping to develop the beautiful game in the United States. It's, it's my honor to still be a part of it. So thank you for having me. And it's great to spend some time with you both. Well, 109 appearances for USA, but her first appearance on Shoulder to Shoulder, of which we are very thankful for. In that run, 13 goals for the national team. Obviously, gold medals at 04 in Athens, 08 in Beijing, when she put the team on her back and brought home gold for the USA. And of course, World Cup appearances in 2003 and 2007. Quite an illustrious guest we have with us this evening. What we would really like to hear first and foremost from you is tell us about when the beautiful game entered your life and when you knew you had fallen in love with football. We know that you started playing at a very young age at seven years old, quickly went on in your academy career to be a prolific scorer. So between picking up a ball for the first time at seven years old and going on to becoming one of the most prolific scorers in your youth academy's history, when did you fall in love with the beautiful game? You know, it's interesting. I think at seven years old, when I was first introduced to the game was the moment that I fell in love with it as well. I mean, I think that's why I, I continued to play the sport. And I always played because I loved it and I enjoyed it. And, and the moment that it started feeling different from that was when I retired in 2009. So for me, it was pretty much an instant love affair. Uh, I like to say that it was the freedom of running around on the soccer fields. And, you know, I played with all boys when I first started playing soccer, which was not uncommon for my generation. But uh, I loved the orange slices at halftime. I loved, you know, the Slurpees my dad would give me for each goal that I scored. So, you know, there was there was a lot to love about the, the game from the from the very moment I started playing it. Now, growing up in Virginia, what was the scene like in your local communities uh, in terms of football and soccer? Was there a lot of opportunities? opportunities for you to find fields to go and play on, or was it few and far between? You know, it's interesting because I was fortunate in growing up in an area where there seemed to have and be field availability. I mean, I think to a certain extent, but I, I also think there are certain communities that I could say that wasn't the case. And I, so I think there was just a little bit of a mixed bag with that. I think also I was the first in my family to play 
soccer and, and also just to understand the different dynamics with, I was at, at neighborhood soccer, the tan stingers when, you know, I first got involved with the sport and then my parents started understanding and learning about, you know, club and travel soccer and what that was about. I mean, there was a whole nother world that had opened up to us. So, you know, even thinking about what the fields look like, you know, the club that I wound up playing for beach FC, there was actually a sports specific complex that was built in Virginia beach and is there now. And beach FC now has a, a futsal facility that has been built and established. So, you know, I think things have changed and I think I was fortunate that, you know, in the area that I did grow up, there was decent amount of field availability, but I, I don't think I could say that for every person who wanted to play the sport. It's got to be such a rewarding feeling, you know, obviously based off of your career, your early career, you very much spent a lot of your time in Virginia. And now to look back at the places where you grew up and to see that there is a footprint that you were a part of, whether it was immediately being involved and helping build the culture or just from being there and seeing where it's coming from. And I'm sure that in that community, you know, when you was the University of Virginia, I'm sure that people looked at you and said, she's a local girl. She's from here. She, she it's like you representing us, you know, and it's got to be such a rewarding feeling to be able to go back home and to see what it is that your city that you grew up in looks like today. Yeah, I, I think I feel a little spoiled. I feel very appreciative because I think I had a lot of support from my local community. I think I also got a little bit embarrassed whenever there was a write-up in the paper. You know, it seemed to happen a lot just because this was a a sport that wasn't necessarily getting a whole lot of attention during the time I started growing up and, and playing in it. My high school coach, Kevin Sims, at Norfolk Academy, he actually um, was recently the president of Soccer Coaches Association, and he did a really great job of getting our small private school soccer team to go out and play out of state um, and have other experiences with competition and being able to be seen by other college coaches and scouts. So it was a very unique situation that I was involved in. And and I think having that support of the community, being able to go back home and, you know, still feel that it, I mean, it's truly a special and I feel very grateful for it. Well, it's no surprise your name showed up in many newspaper headlines. By the time you graduated Norfolk Academy, you were an NSE AA All-American selection in 95, twice named All-Star, twice an All-Region selection. When you graduated, you graduated with an all-time record 204 goals and 106 assists. Those are like indoor numbers. That is some crazy (laughs) statistics. So it is no wonder that you are still hallowed in those grounds to this day. I wonder throughout the course of your youth playing, were there any teams that you supported? Are you one of those players that was focused on your own game and didn't pay much attention to what was going on in global soccer? Or are you one of those that ravenously consumed and had a team you supported in your youth? You know, I wasn't. I think um, I feel very, like even just thinking back on it, almost naive a little bit about just the global impact of football and really the meaning that it holds. I think as I got older and really wasn't until I think probably even after college, just understanding the power of this specific sport and, you know, how much it's ingrained in other cultures. And so I think I also could see a little bit of that from the guys that I played with. I think the boys definitely had more interest, you know, with, with international teams and and other countries and other leagues. But when I started playing with all girls teams, it, it definitely didn't, 
have that same appeal yet. So, you know, just even looking at the growth of the sport in general, and then even getting even more micro of just looking at the different gender growth as well, and, and looking at girls and women's soccer, and now the the teams that we can pay attention to and the interest and the professionalism, even in the college game, it, it's changed so much since I was a youth. Well, let's fast forward slightly in your career and speak about one of the most radical moments in women's soccer, certainly within the United States. So you graduate University of Virginia. Once again, you leave a legacy behind. You are still the school's all-time leader in goals and game-winning goals and total points. You racked up 19 game winners in your 59 goals while there and were then given a call-up to the U.S. Women's National Team U-20 and were part of the United States soccer during that amazing 99 run to which this episode is paying homage to and the impact that it had on our football community, the women's game here, and of course, Chris and I personally. So kind of tell us a little bit about your observations of 99. Did it feel like the watershed moment to you as far as the women's game here in America? And, you know, moreover, what was it like being around those players that we idolized for so many years? Yeah, you know, I think uh, for me, It was very similar to how a lot of other, not just soccer fans, but I'd say Americans felt during that tournament. The first time that I actually was able to see a higher level in that national team level was what you said, the U20 team. And at that time when I was in college, it was the U20 and the full women's national team. And that was it. We didn't have any of the other youth levels for national team program. So that was when I started playing and, and competing, you know, with on the U20 team, some of the players that then went on to go and play in the full team and later became some of my teammates and, and also opponents in the professional leagues. But it was definitely thinking about 99, I think just impactful to see on the world stage, how this team of players that, you know, I had looked up to and really was the reason that I aspire to be on the national team, you know, from that VHS cassette tape, my, my dad showed me of the first ever women's world championship now called the world cup and saw a bunch of badass women who were completely competitive and dominating and as much in love with the sport that I was. And so to see this group on the world stage and, and accomplish such an incredible feat and the way that they did in the fashion that they did for me definitely felt like a pivotal moment and just okay, this isn't just a a small group of people that are seeing this. This is now on the world stage and and especially in our country. And, you know, I think we all know that this completely changed history and and the ability of what exists today for a professional female soccer player. So shortly after 99, you did get your opportunity to go with the full first team of the United States women's national team. What was it like for you? What was the feeling, you know, especially because when you look at, the women's game in the early 2000s, the United States was definitely considered the most dominant force in women's national soccer. So what did it feel like for you to be associated with that, to be part of that team and to have people looking at you and holding you with the high regard as the best at your team and at your position? I mean, it was mixed. It was like, I'm so scared to be here. This is so great to be here. I'm honored. I've wanted this for such a long time. And you think all those things. And then you know, once, once that settles down a little bit, then, then it's about how can I get better? How can I improve not just my own game, but play at a level that I'm improving the teammates that I'm surrounded by. Uh, and that's also part of, I think the role that I saw me having, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily 
a starter for the majority of my career with, with the U.S. team. Definitely was more of a reserve player, a role player. So that meant that I had to show up every day in practice so that I knew I was challenging my teammates to make them better as well. But, you know, for me to be able to play with some of the players that I had always looked up to and admired who had really helped to keep me on a path of I'm trying to reach this U.S. women's national team and then to become friends with them. I mean, it's, it was a little bit surreal when, you know, when I, when I think about it, but, you know, some of the most incredible memories of my personal and and professional development really have come from that experience and and being able to play and represent my country. You know, you talk about how your role for the majority of your career was as a reserve player, but you did have a significant role in the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, where you came in for Abby Wambach off of an injury, and you pretty much helped lead the United States to the gold medal game, where you had scored four goals, including two against Japan in the semifinals. What was that like for you, that experience, obviously being in the Olympics, representing your country at a world game like the Olympics, and then also to step in next player up and to take advantage of the situation. And I think part of it is, you know, any single person on that team, you know, we train for those moments. We know that that's part of the role too, whether you're a starter, whether you're coming off the bench, whether you get two minutes to end a game, whether you need to be a starter and and play it over time after the 90 minutes are up. I mean, these are the things and the expectations that we all have and had for one another. And for me to to have that opportunity, I, I think it was just, okay, now I'm mentally switching. Now I'm not this role. Now I'm this role. And now this is how I need to show up. So it was a, an extreme focus. It was completely draining. You know, it's you're literally giving your all every single time you're stepping out in that field. And then you take the moments in between games to recover and get physically refreshed and mentally focused for the next one, because, you know, we're all there to do a job. We're there to get to that gold medal podium. And I think what was really so special about that and what I still hold on to today is that, yes, I was a leading goal scorer for the team for that tournament, but it took every single person from the players to our staff, to, you know, the massage therapists, every single person coming together to help us get to that point uh, of winning the gold in, in that Olympics. And, you know, and that was with the loss of our most dynamic and leading goal scorer, you know, with Abby going out right before we left for that Olympics due to injury. So, you know, I think that's the most special thing that I, I hold with me today is to see how every single person had to come together for us to actually achieve that goal that we set out to do. Something folks like Chris and I will never know is the sensation of standing there and having a gold medal placed over your neck. You got to experience this not only once, but twice. And I'm just curious from a fanboy perspective, you know, is there anything in life that compares to having that gold medal placed around your neck? Is it, you know, the birth of or meeting a child for the first time? Is it a wedding day? Is it, is it any of those things or, or do none of those pale in comparison to that culmination and that moment? So I, I definitely wanted to wear my gold medals while I was, you know, in the process of having the birth of my first child, um, just to see if it, you know, could maximize it. <laughs> I think, um, I don't think so. I think what it is, it's the combination of, you know, yes, what happens, you win the game, right? But you go back into the locker room, then you're kind of celebrating with the team in the locker room, you know, the, the champagne flying all over the place, you know, and, and then you're getting changed quickly into your sweats to go back out to the podium. And I think it's the feeling of standing there, seeing the flags, you know, in the stands, 
looking at your teammates, standing on the podium, putting the medal around your neck, but just that entire moment and just kind of taking that all in. I think it's the combination of every single part of that that makes it so special. And for me, I I love sharing the medal with kids, with fans, with friends, because it's just a, it's a good story about what it took to get there and to actually get that medal. It's a great representation um, of something that I can really hold on to, but something that I like to share with others as well. Well, this nation owes you a great debt of gratitude for your service on the pitch, but since your playing career came to a close, your service off the pitch and something that we often say around the LA sports community is being this a force for good, so to speak. And since leaving the pitch, you have gone on to a number of humanitarian efforts that have all culminated in in your current landing in Los Angeles. But you were the president of the Women's Sports Foundation for two years, the founder and CEO of the Empowerment Through Sport Leadership Series. You were a keynote speaker at the She Believes Summit. You sit on the advisory board for You Can Play. You have your own TED Talk. I mean, um, from going from being an athlete and inspiring on the pitch to taking on so many endeavors in order to be that force for good in the community. Take us through what drives you to do those things and and, and where your passions lie with these particular fields. You know, I feel like I, I try to figure out where that internal drive comes from. And I, I definitely feel my family and just the way that I was raised and my parents being educators and and instilling kind of those values of understanding that I have been given a lot. And I know that my path in the sport isn't one that necessarily all children have. And especially, you know, for me as, as a woman of color and looking at underserved communities and what they do and don't have. And so I think that's part of the drive as well. And just knowing that there's more that we can all do. I I believe that all children should have the ability and have access to sport and that's still not the case. So I would love to see that changed um, and understanding that the power of, of the sport and what really it can do to unite and to bring community together. I've traveled the world to see that literally uh, happening in front of my eyes and being able to just speak, you know, this language through soccer and, and through the sport that, you know, I wasn't able to communicate verbally, but through the sport, I'm, I'm literally able to go to another country and, you know, juggle the ball around and, and kind of have that conversation, you know, through, through playing soccer with another person. So I think it's all of those things. Um, and there's always more to do. So let's flash forward now to Los Angeles. What is it about the current state of Los Angeles and football in Los Angeles that made you decide you wanted to be a part of Angel City Football Club? Thanks so much. I think also the, the first part, just seeing how differently this organization was being put together. First female-led and majority-owned football club. I think that in and of itself is truly unique and special. And and because of that approach and because of the intentionality of raising the bar, raising the standards, breaking through barriers, bringing attention to pay equity and the gender gap, and doing this all through you know the sport that I love, I think was a, a big factor for me wanting to get involved in Angel City. You know, having this be my my second kind of home away from home after I, I left Boston and, you know, finished hanging up the boots. So 
to be able to do it in my backyard and in my own community, uh, to understand that there are still a desire and a want and a need for this to happen in Los Angeles and, you know, the city of angels, but of, of sports and entertainment, it was a no brainer. And it's been extremely special to be on this side of the game too, and, and have the player's perspective, but to be, you know, in the front office and to be able to bring that perspective to the business side, I think is another unique quality that it's, it's been great to be a part of with Angel City. So why don't you take us through your role with Angel City Football Club and sort of let the people know what exactly it is you do. And then then there are two things that, that I would also like you to touch on with regards to, to Angel City Football Club. And you may have seen these two names coming and with all the news that we've had in the past two weeks. But I'm very, very curious to hear about our new head coach coming in in Ferre And then, of course, the biggest name in all of women's soccer right now, the biggest news to heck with Messi, to heck with Ronaldo. <laughs> We've got Chris and Press coming to Los Angeles. So, you know, kind of take us through your role, um, uh, you know, as VP of Player Development and Operations and uh, what you're going to do to help develop Chris and Press. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, it's it's great. It's, we, you know, my role, I have kind of two components, the soccer operations and then the, the player development. And it's actually the player development more off the field when I say that. And the operations part is everything from, you know, the logistics and the planning of, of the travel and the accommodations, player housing, you know, all of those things. And then the player development side is how can we help our players maximize the time that they are professional athletes, help them to understand, you know, their brand, their value and what they can do to really leverage that and, and create more opportunities, provide them with more education and resources so that we can, you know, achieve that ultimate goal of that gender gap and the disparity um, and really being able to set them up for life and understanding that they are people first, they are players, but what happens off the field can impact what their performance looks like on the field. So really making sure that they have the best player experience because they live and breathe and give everything to this, the sport and this game. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're taking care of them and that they can focus on the field, but that they can feel like they are the professionals and, and valued as much as possible. So you've touched on it a little bit with all the various charitable efforts that you were a part of and, and all of those attempts to elevate the women's game attempt to elevate the rights for the LGBTQ plus community, minorities within the sport. From when your career started until now, how do you think opportunities have changed and equality has changed within the world of football? And being one of the central themes of this show being shoulder to shoulder, how do we as the LA soccer community continue to stand shoulder to shoulder with women's soccer, with LGBTQ people in sports and all the various efforts to which you have helped pioneer over the course of the last two decades? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot. <laughs> there's lots of that question because a lot of it does root in, in education and awareness. I think when we look at pathways and specifically opening up pathways for more women to stay involved in sport or to get involved in sport. You know, when, when you talk about, um, you know, our, our first head coach and, and first player signing, you know, to have to um, completely uh, experience and very uh, successful females at the helm, you know, and Freya uh, as our head coach and, and to come into this environment and to really set the standard. And obviously with Kristen as well, too 
have one of the most prolific goal scorers right now with, with the U S women's national team coming in. It's, it's showing that it's showing young women and young men, the, the power in that. And, you know, what women can really achieve when provided those opportunities. Uh, I think when we're looking at the LGBTQ space, you know, I know right now there's, there's also a lot of attention on, um, you know, just being accurate and using the correct pronouns for players. So I think just having that education and, and understand there's going to be some time to get more understanding of differences. But I think when the effort is made and, you know, I love, I love shoulder to shoulder uh, because to me that represents, you know, who's going to get the edge. Um, you know, we're, we're playing shoulder to shoulder. We're, we're trying to achieve this goal. We're trying to go run down this ball and we're shoulder to shoulder, but who is going to ultimately have that edge to get to the finish line and what, what do we do to create that edge? So I think it's, it's really understanding that this is a community effort. When we think about all the issues right now that are facing some of the uh, underrepresented groups and, you know, how this impacts every single one of us, you know, if we're straight, how do we support and advocate for our LGBTQ community? And, you know, if, you know, we're, we're a male, you know, how are we supporting and, you know, looking for how we're going to really look to bridge that gap when we think about pay equity and, you know, vice versa. So it's not just, you know, a woman's issue, it's a community issue. And we look at these human rights and, and I think we're just in a great position to use something that's fun and exciting that can bring people together to really raise more awareness. Can you talk to us about, you know, since you are the first representative from Angel City FC on our show, can you tell all of our listeners about the working relationship that ACFC has with LAFC? And especially when you're talking about trying to build and bridge that gap for equality, we have seen that LAFC has been a voice in the community for equality. And we try to get, we have women's night and pride night. And so can you just talk about that working relationship with LAFC? And especially when it comes to things like the goals that we all try and share equally about uh, empowering those communities that need help. Yeah, I think LAFC has just done a tremendous job in establishing, you know, how to do those things in the right way, especially in our LA community. I think the relationship has been really wonderful. Obviously, we're playing at the the Bank of California Stadium as well. And to have that ability just to be in one of the best environments in the world, you know, not just in our country, but in the world when it comes to soccer specific stadiums. I mean, I'm ready to go dip my my feet in that pool on the rooftop deck again. So, <laughs> you know, like to be in that stadium, to have our players in there, to compete, to bring in, you know, other NWSL teams into that environment, you know, first and foremost, just to have that ability, you know, that, that comes from a good relationship with LAFC and the support and, and the, I think similarities as well, when we think about, you know, Angel City is coming into Los Angeles as an expansion team, which uh, LAFC did. And to do that and understand how you do that in uh, such a unique market, I think it's been great to have that support from LAFC as well and to see basically what's what's been done right and what's been done well. So it's not like we have to go out and completely recreate a, a model. Obviously, they're two different leagues, but there are a lot of similarities. Um, and, and so I think from an Angel City perspective, it's been great to, to have such a positive relationship to kind of mirror off of what LAFC has done so well. So I'm curious of what your outlook for the 2022 season for ACFC is. What are the major goals you'd like to accomplish 
as franchise in the community and as a squad on the pitch. Mm. Yeah, I think definitely we are so rooted and intentional about building community. And I think that's, again, one of one of the attractors to me for Angel City is, is how important that really is to us. And so I think with that, it's it's not just building that support around the team, which I think we already kind of have, even though we just have one player right now and, and just named our head coach. The fans have been incredible. The community has been incredible already for Angel City. So, you know, that is something that we want to continue um, to, to build and I think would definitely be a goal. And, you know, I think it would be great to win a championship in our first season, but, you know, the the, the statistics behind that aren't necessarily in our favor. But, um, you know, I think this is a type of organization and club where we do set that bar and that standard high and, you know, we are, we are going to try and, and reach it. I think also just getting people out there. We know one of the ways to support this league and and these players are to to buy the season tickets and to actually get people out in the stadium and experience it and enjoy it and have fun. So, you know, we still definitely have those goals that are that we want to set and and have matched as well when it comes to, you know, the tickets and getting people out there. So, you know, I think on the pitch, we definitely want to compete and we want to establish this winning culture and, and win championships uh, through Angel City. But I think equally as important is, is what we're doing in, in the community, how we're able to have our sponsorships literally giving a percentage back to community efforts and initiatives and programming. And those are things that we definitely want to see continue uh, to, to help build not just Angel City, but to build that relationship with Los Angeles. Well, thank you so much. You have been very generous with your time this evening. We do have one final question for you this evening. Of course, our guest today has been Angela Hucles. You know her as the part owner, vice president of player development and operations for Los Angeles's very own Angel City Football Club. She is, of course, a legend with the U.S. women's national team, scoring in multiple Olympic competitions, taking home gold medal for U.S. soccer in 04 and 08, and of course, bringing home the bronze in 03 and 07 for the World Cup. Again, Angela, thank you so much for coming and joining this evening. Before we send you home, we have one question that we ask every single guest. We touched on it a minute earlier, but we'd like to hear from you. When you hear a club like LAFC or a soccer franchise attempt to take the term shoulder to shoulder, and apply it to community and branding as well too. Through that lens, what does shoulder to shoulder mean to you? Yeah, and, and I know I probably jumped the gun a little bit because I got excited to hear shoulder to shoulder, but I love it so much. Um, and it definitely, it resonates just with that feeling of being on the field uh, shoulder to shoulder with my opponent and trying to figure out how I'm going to win, how I'm going to get that edge. I, I think you know, we are looking at Angel City to break barriers and we know it's, it's a tall task and a tall order, but we are a hundred percent, you know, all systems go, everyone is bought in super passionate group and organization. And even how we are welcoming in our, our players and our staff, everyone is on the same page about that. And it's how we can build community through this incredible sport and how we can make a difference for Los Angeles, but really set that bar in our country and internationally as well. Well, thank you so much. It is a true honor to have a legend of the U.S. game here on the show with us. Of course, if you haven't already put your money down with ACFC, what's wrong with you? 
join up with me. They've got my money. I'll be there. Of course, you can follow Angel City at We Are Angel City on all their social media platforms. Please, if you uh, are not going to go to the games, at least help us support and be a voice for that community here within Los Angeles. Uh, you know, some retweets, some follows, just help create the buzz and let people know that uh, there is a place for the women's game. Finally, after so many years here in Los Angeles, we have created so many wonderful players over the years to finally have our own team in which to root for is something that I am very, very excited about and am very looking forward to everything that comes out of ACFC. So thank you so much once again for joining us. It's been our pleasure. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Appreciate it. And that wraps up episode 99. On behalf of Chris, Christian, sound engineer Wilton, and myself, we would like to thank Angela Hughes very much for joining this evening. And that'll be all, folks. Sticks, take us home. Together, this our culture. Feel the force of a supernova. Stay flying that FC Dorsum. Hey, shopping down to Nikki's Koreatown Liddy. Cape us so mommy, about to drop her fifth. They won't need to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bank.